Uh, as Kevin said, my name is Devin, uh, and for those of you who may not know me, uh, my wife and I have been coming to the Table Church actually since it began, uh, which is almost four years ago now, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, you know, around here I am sometimes more popularly known as Isabella's dad, um, or the guy who plays guitar sometimes. Um, if you'd like to come say hi after service, either of those are acceptable. I will, I will answer to both. Um, so, I have to say, when, when my wife and I started coming to the table, um, I never imagined I'd find myself here. Um, as, as Kevin mentioned, you know, um, we both went to the same theology program, um, and I served as a ministerial intern during that time. Um, I worked as a hospital chaplain for some of it. Um, so, I, I was well on, my, on the road to becoming a minister. Um, and then somewhere along the way, I just sort of started to feel that the church I was a part of, the, the denomination at the time, I wasn't sure if I could trust them with my life. Uh, because I had seen some of my friends uh, sort of say the wrong thing to the wrong person, and it really cost them. And that was a really hard process. Uh, and so I eventually decided, this isn't for me. I'm, I'm going to find something else to do with my life. Um, so I, I left the ministry and, and started to pursue uh, a career in nonprofits, and that was that was 12 years ago from now. Um, I've since had a, a long career doing a, a variety of things. Uh, most recently, I work for the Archdiocese for the Military Services uh, that supports Catholic chaplains in the military. Um, but as I've become more enmeshed in this community, I have started to feel something. I'm not exactly sure what, I'm still not totally sure what it is, but just a, a calling that God wanted to draw more out of me. Um, and I wasn't quite sure where that was going to take me, but um, I was open to whatever came. And then a while back, Kevin mentioned that this preaching cohort was happening and, and wondered if I might be interested. And I thought, well, this, is, uh, this seems to fit with where God has been leading me, so I, I'll, um, sure, I can sign up for that. Um, so through this long, winding road of my life, you know, God has started to pull out of me gifts that I've forgotten, um, things that I uh, didn't know I had, and, and sort of do things with me that I wasn't really prepared uh, to have done. Uh, and this community has been a really important part of that, sort of cracking my life open and exposing it to the, the work God has to do on me in a lot of ways uh, that I could never have anticipated. Um, so, I mean, this isn't really part of my sermon, but I would, uh, I would just encourage you, if you're new here, or if you've, you know, just been coming on Sundays and haven't found a way to connect more deeply, uh, this place can really transform you, and it, it, sometimes it's uncomfortable, I mean, it's not always easy, but the way that this place, as you, as you live life in community with people, your life gets peeled apart and opened to God's grace and challenge and, um, new forms of life that you might not even realize uh, are a possibility for you now. So um, it's been a really wonderful journey for me these last four years, and, you know, I want to encourage you to find a way to connect, you know, if it's a small group, if it's a ministry team, you know, dig, dig more deeply into this place because it will really change you in wonderful ways. Um, so to get to the sermon, um, I have to admit, this, this week's text, we're preaching from the lectionary text, which is sort of the traditional verses that the church has decided are the best, most appropriate for this season of, of the church. So um, 
the one that I landed on is actually one of my favorite. Um, you know, anybody who knows me fairly well will know that I am somewhat of a rebel. I, um, I just, there's something in me that sort of likes when powerful people get put in their place. Um, as an example of that, I, I, so this is one of my favorite stories, uh, just to get, you know, to let you get to know me a little bit better, um, to know where I'm coming from. Uh, when I met my wife, actually, we, uh, we met both working at a summer youth camp in Chicago, um, and I was recruited randomly to be the guitar teacher at the camp by this uh, old hippie guy named Dave Clark. Um, and he's a very lovable character. We're, he's still a good friend to this day, but uh, he, he's very opinionated, uh, had, had very strong convictions about things. And uh, my wife, well, my eventual wife to Amanda, was uh, a family friend of theirs and had sort of, he had a bit of a fatherly protectionist relationship with her and sort of felt, you know, a responsibility to look out for her. Um, and uh, her and I, upon meeting, you know, of course she immediately fell in love with me. And uh, <laughs> don't ask her for her version of that story, it's not important. Um, but uh, my, actually my college roommate who had come with me to the summer camp, uh, we were sitting around with Dave and he jokingly sort of asked him, so Dave, I think uh, Devin's interested in Amanda. What, what sort of chances do you think he has? And he, he laughs this big hearty laugh and throws his head back and he holds up his hand. Zero percent. It'll never happen. Well, 14 months after that, we got married in the church where that conversation happened. And uh, we recently celebrated our 11th wedding anniversary. So, um, yeah. <laughs> See, like, that's a satisfying story, right? Somebody thought they knew what they were talking about and they turned it out to have it all wrong. Um, there's just, there's something about that that really pleases me to no end. And it's probably more of a character flaw on my part than anything, but it's just who I am. So the places in scripture where the powerful and the knowledgeable, um, those who think they know how things really are, when they get put in their place, those are really my favorites. Um, and this scripture this week, uh, by, where John the Baptist uh, lets the Pharisees and Sadducees have it, is really uh, one of the best. In fact, I titled this sermon, Who Warned You to Flee the Coming Wrath? It's my favorite line. And that may seem sort of at odds with the theme this week of peace, um, but we'll get around to it. You'll see how that uh, sort of connects in the end. So... That's a pretty rough question, right? It's, um, and I want us, before I get into it, to start, we, we got to fight this tendency to always read ourselves into the good roles in Scripture, right? Everybody here, everybody would rather be John the Baptist than the Pharisees in this story because John the Baptist gets to sort of yell and shout and be, you know, the one on the side of right. But um, as we go through this, I want you to sort of consider that, you know, if you walk the Christian life long enough, we will all find ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees. Um, and so we need to hear what God has to say to us in those circumstances. Um, the, the big question I want us to wrestle with is as we go through this Advent season and we prepare to retell the story of Christ's coming, uh, what does this sort of strange passage have to say to us about what we are preparing for? What is, what is this Jesus guy really all about? Um, and how should we respond to that? So we pick up reading uh, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, the opening verses of this passage. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. But before we go any further um, and hear what John actually has to say, I want to set the stage a little bit. Uh, this is the season of Advent, as you've heard many times um, this morning, and it's a time when we, re- we prepare to rehearse, relive, retell the story of Jesus coming into the world. And when I, I can't help it when I think of Advent, I always immediately am drawn to the picture of the small school stage on Charlie Brown Christmas, right? They, they've got like uh, Linus as a shepherd and there's a, a kid in a sheep's costume and an angel on a wire going across the screen and there's a star hanging from the ceiling. Um, you know, we, we all have these sort of sentimental attachments to the Christmas season. It's a time uh, that's very nostalgic for a lot of people. Um, we often imagine it with things with soft lighting and there's beautiful music playing everywhere you go. Um, and it's just, there's all sorts of loveliness associated with it. But I think this makes it extra important that we listen to what these texts really say. Um, because in many ways, this is not as gentle and as easy of a story as we often imagine. Um, we first have to hear the story, have to hear the demands that this story places on us before we spend time cooing at a baby in a manger. So John the Baptist is here to set the stage for the story of Jesus. He's a prophet of God sent to pave the way for the Messiah. The story actually falls chronologically between the birth narrative of Jesus and the start of his ministry. So in some ways, reading this during Advent, as the church has traditionally done, is like watching a flash-forward scene from the future. The previous chapters tell the story of King Herod, king of Judea, and his quest to protect his throne by killing all of the young boys near Bethlehem. Jesus and his family are saved by the angel who appeared to Joseph, and he was raised miles to the north, safely in Nazareth. Now, years later, the stage is being set for Jesus' ministry to begin, and we are given the first clues about the man that Jesus is is to become. And so here, in the land of the Mad King, the wilderness of Judea, and we have a photo, I think, of the Judean wilderness So this is the Judean wilderness near the Jordan River. Uh, This is likely the setting for this happening. I just want you to get a sense. These people were really in the middle of nowhere. It's quite, uh, the setting plays an interesting part in the story. So I want you to sort of sense it. And here on this barren plain, we meet John the Baptist. And I'm going to do my best to fill the role of John the Baptist so you might Uh, understand it a little bit this morning. I probably should stand up for this. So, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. It's kind of strong language, right? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. 
I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Doesn't that just get you in the Christmas spirit? <laughs> so, what a strange story, right? Um, John the Baptist, this, this wild-eyed prophet, uh, wearing camel's hair and leather, eating bugs and wild honey, is kind of a crazy guy. Um, he's out in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere, no civilization to be found, and he's preaching this message that's kind of hard to hear. He's telling people to repent, that they're sinful, and yet people come from all over to hear him. Just think about that. From this, They're coming here from their farms or their cities or wherever it is that they live, and they wind up in the middle of nowhere listening to a crazy man yell at them. So, finally, the crowds get so big and the news spreads so widely the Pharisees and Sadducees start taking notice. Now, it's important to note who these people are. Uh, the Pharisees were adherents of the oral tradition of Judaism. They were strict in their observance of Jewish law, and they came from every walk of life, but they were the most devout religious people. These are, are the people who cared most deeply about the faith and its practice. Um, historical accounts suggest the number of Pharisees in Israel around 70 AD were about 6,000. So, this is, not everyone is a Pharisee, it's a pretty select group. Um, and they're, they're defined mostly by the fact that they care so much about their faith. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the elite priestly aristocracy, closely tied to the power structures of the day, particularly the temple and the Sanhedrin. The temple was obviously the center of religious and cultural life for Israel. Uh, the Sanhedrin was sort of the legal apparatus that administered the day-to-day. -day. And if you'll remember, Jesus was actually presented before the Sanhedrin uh, several times during his ministry. Um, these were sort of the beltway insiders of Israel's political life, if you will. Um, their family and friends were powerful. They were used to being at the center of influential happenings of the day. So now imagine what it must have looked like to be out in the barren wilderness listening to this wild man preach this hard message of repentance and baptizing common, everyday people when suddenly the religious folks started showing up. Everybody notices them, right? They turn and they whisper to one another. Some are probably thinking to themselves, oh, look, who's making an appearance, right? Like... Us, uh, us common folk are, are not worthy of these people. Some are probably imagining that, you know, this legitimizes what's going on, right? We should feel good about ourselves. The, the important people have shown up, and, and we were here early, right? Um, I guess this movement must be legit. Before, they, we were just some crazy folks out in the desert, but hey, look at us now, right? We have some status. We're important, John the Baptist similarly could have been flattered that all of Israel's most devoted religious leaders are coming to hear him speak again, here. Uh, he could have thought to himself, 
oh, I've really made it now, you know, I'm going to be somebody. You know, the, that, that crazy aunt who keeps telling me that there's this prophecy in Isaiah that talks about me clearing the path in the desert, you know, she must be right, I'm important. Instead of these words, instead of him welcoming the dignitaries and, and being grateful that they're there, this is what we hear him say. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And you've got to remember, uh, he's speaking to Jewish religious people. Like, when, they, when he says the word viper, uh, it, the Greek word can also be translated serpent. Um, they are so steeped in the imagery and the history of the Torah that when they hear serpent, they remember the snake in the Garden of Eden. That's the first image that comes to their mind. They're, they immediately, I mean, like John the Baptist is literally saying to them, you're the people who get it all wrong. You're where things broke down. It, it's, it's about the most powerful rebuke he could have given them. I mean, uh, one of my professors in school actually used to say, this is pretty much as close as anywhere in the Bible, someone comes to swearing at somebody, right? They, this is an ugly thing he said to them. Um, it would be humiliating to them. So, again, I want us to remember, let's, let's not fool ourselves this morning and imagine us ourselves in the shoes of John the Baptist. Let's, let's sit in the shoes of the Pharisees for a moment and, and hear the burn of that rebuke as it stings the ears of religious people. So there you are, having walked for hours through the desert away from Jerusalem, from the place where you're important and you're revered, where you call the shots. And you're, you're walking all this way really because you're just curious to see what all these hillbillies are going on about, right? You think there might be something important happening here, I'm an important person, I should check this out. If, really, if something big is happening, I need to be a part of it. If it's crazy, then I should squash this, right? And instead of getting the welcome you would expect of a religious leader, they're rebuked, they're humiliated, they're sent away. So to the casual observer, this story is pretty shocking. You know, John the Baptist had the ears of the powerful at his disposal. They were right there. I mean, have you ever had something really important to say and you thought, if you could just get the right person in the room to listen to you, you could really change things? This was the right people. They were there, right? They had come to him to see him. And instead of cozying up to that power and that prestige and that status, Instead of trying to wield it for his purposes, he rejects it. Confident that God can act not just without them, but in spite of them. That the status they hoard for themselves works against the kingdom of God. And God doesn't just not need them, he can overcome it with what he is about to do. This is... This is a bizarre public relations strategy, to say the least, right? If, if John is really there to set the stage for Jesus, the coming Messiah, who will save Israel from their long, tortured history, 
then it should come as a surprise to us that his first step is to burn every bridge imaginable between himself and those who wield the power in Israel. Even more surprising is that he threatens them with the coming wrath of God. I mean, to the audience around them, this is truly amazing stuff. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? You know, we don't talk a lot about wrath uh, here at the table. <laughs> Some Christian traditions really get into wrath, right? They, uh, they love to preach condemnation on sinners and scaring you into living better lives. We don't tend to do that. Um, and there are a number of theological reasons for that. But I think first among them is that when you hear Jesus or John the Baptist or anyone in the New Testament narrative really heap condemnation on someone, it's rarely directed at those we would call sinners, right? It, it's, it's not the outsider who won't listen. It's the insider who thinks they know. That's the one who comes in for God's sharpest criticism. So, yeah, it's the people, the, the devout people, who feel that they're already justified for whatever reason. You see, John the Baptist knew that Jesus was coming to set the world right, uh, to justify the brokenness that had separated Israel from God for so long, and to bring healing and wholeness to the world. But the first obstacle that had to be cleared out of the way for God's kingdom to come was the self-righteousness of those who presume themselves to be mediators of God, those for whom religion had become a source of power and social standing, they are the first and most direct recipients of righteous condemnation. Because the gospel, the good news of God, is that it actually brings an upside-down kingdom where those who would feel righteous in rebuking others are condemned and cast out. Where God's final salvation begins not from some palace or a temple, but from a couple of peasants in a barnyard with a baby lying in a horse trough. And if we want to inherit that upside-down kingdom, if we want to follow in the way of Jesus, then we have got to stop justifying ourselves. Stop chasing after power and prestige while we forget the weak and the lowly. Stop filling our bank accounts at all costs and refusing to give generously of our resources, ourselves, and our time. Stop cozying up to power and desperately trying to get in the room with the right people and, we, and forgetting that we serve a God who transforms the world out of weakness from a cross. This is how we bring wrath upon ourselves. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? When Jesus said that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, I don't think... What he meant is that you should run to the back of the line in the hopes that in God's kingdom you'll be first. <laughs> I think what he meant was that the structures you have used to justify yourself, the economic, the political categories by which you have dubbed yourselves elite or important, are not just meaningless to God. They're actually obstacles to his kingdom coming. When John said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham, 
He was saying, your status has nothing to do with God's kingdom. You have built that status on an earthly kingdom, and you must fully and completely repent of it if you want any part in what God is doing. We are the people of God, and so our hope does not come from power. It doesn't come from money or influence or job security or presidential administrations or congressional majorities. Our hope is in the Messiah, the one the prophets foretold, whose path was cleared by a wild man in the desert who shouted at the powerful, bear fruit worthy of repentance, as he turned them away. Last week, Pastor Angela spoke about the hard work of acknowledging our drowsiness and waking ourselves up to the fullness of faith. I hope John the Baptist has delivered a bit of a wake-up call to us this morning. Who told you to flee the coming wrath? Is he talking to you? Have you come here with repentance and submitted your life to the reordering of God's upside-down kingdom? Or are you still justifying yourself? trying to hold on to power and status and resisting the work of God. A Christian life in a place like D.C., so close to the center of power, is hard. Um, Having lived here for eight years, I can tell you this is an easy place to have your life become about power or money or a job title because success and power are right in front of your face. They're there every day. You can see the people who have these things everywhere, and at times, they may even be within your grasp. And there's nothing inherently wrong with success, right? Power can be wielded justly. But if you're not careful, they too easily shift from components of your life to what your life is about. They become your story. See, we all live a story, whether we mean to or not. It's either one that you have chosen or one that the world will write for you. If your story becomes one where you and your accomplishments are the center, you will swallow up whatever God wants to make out of your life, and instead you will chase after the means of self-justification. If that, and, you know, this is why it is so important that we don't rush through Advent, that we give God this season to remember that this, this is our story. Sometimes it's crazy. Sometimes it has hard things to say to us. I hope as you reflect during this Advent season, you will hear that stinging question. And you will ask yourself if it brings to life light any self-righteousness in your heart. Do you feel the wrath that constant attempts to justify yourself can wreak in your life? Are you consumed with an inward focus and anxiety and a distance from those around you? If so, you might be surprised to hear that the theme for this week of Advent is peace, right? It's, I, I admit that seems like a strange fit with this message. But we should remember that a true durable peace, the shalom of God, for which peace is such a weak word, really, it is not the easy absence of conflict. The shalom of God does not come first without turning the world upside down. But that life in that upside down kingdom is actually life as it was meant to be lived. 
where the holes in our hearts are filled in and the darkness of this life is consumed by the life of God lived out in the community that makes up his kingdom. My prayer for this church, this sort of thin place, as one of my professors used to call it, where, where heaven and earth come so close to each other that you can feel it and taste it. I would pray that this place becomes somewhere that those who want to be important or hoard power or money or to be revered, that those people would find this place so intolerable they would flee. And that we would be filled to the brim with repentant followers of Christ who are baptized into the family of God, dying to the way of self-justification and being risen to life in God's kingdom. Because only then will this be a place of peace. Peace for the lost and the broken. Peace for the despised and the left out. Peace for the rejected and the lonely. That is the peace of the upside-down kingdom of God, where the least of these become our honored guests. The kingdom whose arrival was announced by a wild man in the desert, screaming at those who thought they could justify themselves. Let us pray. Father God, I, I thank you for this, this message that peace does not come easy. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we dive further into this Advent season that you would bring peace. But not the easy peace that comes from ignoring the brokenness in our own hearts, the brokenness in our world, and pretending that they don't exist. Lord, I pray for your peace the durable peace that only you can bring. Where things are set right, where the world is reordered according to your will. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.